The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on China-Africa relations through training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Podcast Network. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by China Global South's managing editor, Kobus van Staden in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, as much as we want to try and pivot away from great power politics, the world is just not letting us do that. So last week, we talked about on the show with Ali Wine about U.S.-China-Africa relations. We're going to touch on that theme again today. But also today, we're going to talk a little bit about what happened last week with the TCAD summit in Tunis, Tunisia. So 21 heads of state, representatives from 48 African countries, and the alphabet soup of multilateral organizations were all in Tunis last week for the Japan-Africa summit known as TCAD. Now, for those of you keeping score at home, that's the Tokyo International Conference on Africa Development uh, that's been going on now for almost 30 years. It's one of the lesser-known summits because it takes a little bit more of a more quiet approach than the FOCAC or some of the U.S. summits that have happened over the years, but still very, very important. Let me just review some of the highlights of what happened at last weekend's event. Prime Minister Kishida Fumio, who was not able to attend in person because he had COVID apparently, he delivered his address and his announcements via video and did it so virtually, but he unveiled a $30 billion financial package that is spread over three years. Here's what some of what is planned. 300,000 people will purportedly benefit from Japanese finance training programs, a billion dollars to support African countries' debt restructuring. Let's talk about that, Cobus, in terms of some of the shade that was thrown towards the Chinese, and $5 billion for private sector development in an agreement with the African Development Bank. Now, China as in all of these Africa summits, was never mentioned by name, but was definitely an undercurrent, and you could feel it, even in the prime minister's keynote address. He said this, let me me quote this for you, and this triggered the Chinese, and it was very interesting. He said, unfair and opaque development finance impedes the sustainable development of vulnerable countries. And that's all it took to get the Chinese to go ballistic. So in the Global Times newspaper, which is the nationalist conservative newspaper in China, it's a tabloid, they are usually the tip of the spear in these types of responses. More moderate responses tend to come from People's Daily and then eventually maybe even from the foreign ministry itself. But the quick take from Global Times was, let me quote this for you, Kobus here. What China opposes is the vicious attempt by Western countries, including the US and Japan, to discredit China, asking African countries to be, quote-unquote, wary of China at every turn. They took specific issue with the opaque development reference from the prime minister. They then referenced the fact that this is another way of accusing China of engaging in debt trap diplomacy, and they just went to town to criticize the whole TCAD event. Now, there was also a really funny part of their response, which I'd like to get your take on as well, Kobus. They said, uh, and this is real just cognitive dissonance here. I mean, you're just like in a parallel universe. Japan is not giving this $30 billion in aid for free, and the aid usually comes with strings attached, said Global Times. For example, African enterprises and governments have to buy equipment and import goods from Japanese companies during Japanese investment. Then they went on to say, that is to say... If Africa wants to benefit from Japan, it must also benefit Japan 
as well. And I was just scratching my head reading that because that sounds an awful lot like what the Chinese actually do in Africa as well in their contracting. And it's just surreal sometimes to see how these debates play out. Yeah, I mean, you know, like everyone who knows anything about about Chinese, you know, development finance knows that one of the key key, you know, kind of issues there is that whatever, like if you get financing from a Chinese policy bank, then that comes with the proviso that the work is done by a Chinese company, you know, and I think to a certain extent, it's, it is very funny and ironic to, to see, you know, China, uh, you know, accusing Japan in this way, because a lot of this, a lot of these, these mechanisms were employed by Japan when they when they did a lot of development work in China and then China took a lot of those of those you know kind of concepts and and, and tried them out in Africa you know FOCAC TCAT slash FOCAC the kind of continent plus one summit format being one example um, you know they, they had TCAT first and then FOCAC came later um, and so so this is this is really funny I mean the you know I, I guess what what the kind of underlying thing is there is that the you know obviously tide aid has come in for a lot of a lot of well you know kind of a, a lot of reasonable criticism and and some European powers have, have, have cut back on on tide aid um you know kind of because they say it, it impedes um, it impedes a kind of fair tendering processes which you know I think is true but but it also has the effect of building these kind of relationships these longer term relationships for these for you know kind of for these Asian companies in Africa and once they're acclimatized some of them may you know kind of like maintain a longer presence as many Japanese companies have and as many Chinese companies have come to do. So, you know, so it's not necessarily that it's 100% exploitative, but what is really funny is that the Chinese do exactly the same thing and, uh, and are now kind of condemning it in, in heated terms. And quickly, what was your take on the TCAD outcomes? $30 billion, 300,000 people trained, $5 billion for the AFDB, a number of other initiatives. Only 24 heads of state went, much less than who go to FOCAC and the U.S. summits. What was your your quick take on TCAD? I was surprised that they that they went with a, with a full you know kind of like funding number um, this time um, because at the previous uh, TCAD um, in 2019 they 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 stepped away from that apparently for, like by, like at the request of Japanese companies um, who you know kind of who felt that they they were kind of like unfairly reputationally on the hook for you know kind of for for funding targets that they didn't set. Um, so it is interesting that they kind of moved back in that direction, and that they that they increased it by so much. You know, at a time when 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 many other other kind of entities are cutting funding back. I think in terms of the stuff that they fund, it seems like it's a continuation of the work that they've been doing for a long time. So Japan has been has doing a, has done a lot of training and people to people exchange and and so on already in Africa. Um, you know, kind of they and and, this, and the, some of the other the other kind of work that they like the, the announcements that they that they made is also also continuations of, of work. Um, I was also kind of interested to see how much kind of food aid and and support, kind of financial support aspect is, you know, kind of was, was in this package. Um, and, you know, it's clear, you know, a clear, I guess, acknowledgement of, of the kind of impact of Ukraine and the pandemic and other crises on the bottom line in Africa at the moment, particularly on food security. And then there was that $1 billion allocated for debt restructuring, which will be well-received. 
in a number of African countries. The TCAD summit came at a time of very busy great power politics in Africa and many parts of the world, but we're focusing on Africa here. So it came obviously about a month after the United States unveiled its new strategy for Africa. We're going to talk about that today, but also it's coming in the run-up now to the 20th Party Congress that this week was announced will happen on October 16th. And while that is a largely domestic political affair in China, I would say almost exclusively, it will have very important ramifications in great power politics when Chinese President Xi Jinping emerges after October 16th as probably the most powerful Chinese leader since the Mao Zedong era. And it is my expectation that he is going to ramp up the great power politics massively. He's going to start going to many of the international events, and he's going to be much more assertive on the international stage once he's back in the swing of things, attending these various events and things like that. So buckle up, because it's going to get very bumpy. And because of this, this is why, again, we're coming back to this topic of great power politics. I just want to be very clear. We don't want Want this show to become every week. This is what Washington and Beijing and, and various capitals think of what's happening in Africa. That's not what we want to do. We're just in the season right now where there's a lot going on. We will try to push the show back to some of the traditional topics that we normally cover, but we just felt there is so much going on that we had to address it. And that's why we were so happy to have had the chance to speak with Zainab Usman, who she's been on the show before with us. She's a senior fellow and director of the Africa program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace in Washington, D.C. She's one of the smartest people in the D.C. policy space who really thinks about these big issues, and she's been writing a lot lately, both in books and also in key journals and magazines, on these issues of U.S.-China-Africa relations and the U.S. strategy. We had a chance to speak with her last week before some of these events in TCAD and obviously the 20th Party Congress were announced, but her conversation with us was absolutely fascinating. Let's take a listen. Zainab Usman, welcome back to the program. It's great to speak with you again. Very nice to be with you, uh, Eric and Kobus. You have been very busy these past few months. It's been a busy 2022 for you. You've published a new book, Economic Diversification in Nigeria, The Politics of Building a Post-Oil Economy. You've also been publishing a lot in foreign affairs and on the Carnegie website, talking about the new U.S. strategy for Africa. Let's start our conversation there, and then we're going to go into some of the themes that you raised in your book. And we'd also like to get your take on what it's like in Washington these days. We want to take advantage of your presence there. So let's start. In Foreign Affairs, you published an article earlier this month, and you wrote, and I'm going to quote here, to truly forge new partnerships with Africa, the United States should place economic diplomacy at the core of its engagement. Then on the Carnegie website, you also said that U.S. policy is at once very exciting because it breaks with the past, but at the same time filled with a lot of status quo elements. So with all of that together in the bowl, can you help us better understand where you think U.S. policy towards Africa is today? And again, there's some China undercurrents that are present in all of that. Let's start there. Yeah, so uh, again, thank you for having me. I think we are in a, 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 at a very interesting juncture and in a very interesting moment in time in the sense that uh, we're seeing a, a number of global shifts and uh, different parts of the world are responding accordingly. Now, for the African continent, uh, there is uh, a lot of interest from global powers, certainly China, certainly uh, Russia, I mean, Russia has been engaging with African countries since uh, the days of the Cold War, uh, but also the U.S. and Europe. 
you know, different parts of the world are now coming up with new policies, new strategies, new initiatives for uh, strengthening the engagement with the African continent. So it is within this context that we now see the Biden administration's much-awaited strategy on Africa. Uh, and, uh, you know, a lot of us are very glad to see it. We're glad to see aspects of the framing of the strategy. We know the efforts that went into preparing and producing uh, the document with the consultations uh, that happened in the background. And in a way, it's somewhat this new U.S. strategy on Africa is somewhat comparable to recently launched initiatives for Latin America and also the Indo-Pacific. But uh, when you compare those initiatives, uh, as I've tried to do, um, you find that uh, at least for the for for the one on Africa, there's a the effort was a bit more elaborate, I would say. Um, so the framing also is something that a lot of us have welcomed, the framing of the document and the initiative, uh, which is around a partnership with African countries uh, motivated by some of these uh, global shifts. So there's particularly an acknowledgement that Africa is important to US global priorities, which is really not the case in the past where any engagement with Africa was really framed with respect to kind of providing humanitarian assistance or tackling security threats or threats around infectious diseases. So this kind of risk management and risk mitigation mindset of the past, you don't see as much of it in this new strategy, but there's more of an acknowledgement of Africa's importance, you know, as a continent with a rapidly growing population, which is going to get to around 2.5 billion people by 2050 as one of the world's largest trading blocks with the Africa continental free trade area, if that is successfully implemented with natural resources, endowments, and with the voting bloc in the United Nations. And of course, then this framing also is a kind of a informed in many ways by positioning for this great power competition with China and Russia for influence in Africa. Now, you know, it is true indeed that we don't see as much reference to China and Russia and other quote-unquote adversaries as was the case in the Trump administration when Prosper Africa was launched by John Bolton in 2018, for example. But at the same time, the specter of China really looms large in the entire strategy, and it is in many ways informed by this great power competition. And then maybe the final thing I'll say with respect to just kind of providing a broad uh, overview of the strategy is we know that there are four strategic objectives, some of which are kind of new and some are a reiteration of longstanding U.S. priorities uh, on the continent. And we can get into that in a bit more detail. You know, w w one of the one of the interesting um, issues on, on our side, as, as you know, as, as we as we track Chinese um, responses to the African, uh, the, the, the new Africa strategy from the U.S., um, is that the one one particular kind of Chinese um, analyst that we focus on? He spent a lot of time looking at um, or concentrating on the, the the kind of geographical framing that that comes you know later in the document. Um, so in in some of your comments that I've that I've watched online, um, you you called out the document um, for being titled, uh, you know, a, a strategy for sub-Saharan Africa, pointing out that that Africa itself 
is looking a lot more seriously at continental integration and trying to move beyond this kind of artificial split between sub-Saharan Africa and North Africa. Um, but, you know, so, 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 so I was wondering kind of what, what you thought of later in the document, there's also these, these kind of, um, these kind of calls to de-seam the view of Africa and to, you know, to, to, to look more integratedly at, at the continent, but then also to integrate Africa into Indo-Pacific strategy for, for the U.S., so the, on the Chinese side, that was interpreted as as wanting to pull Africa into into the U.S. Indo-Pacific strategy, which is seen in China as as a mechanism mainly to contain China. So I was wondering what you thought of that kind of like brief and you know kind of almost throwaway kind of mention of that. Um, how you think it's gonna it's gonna actually manifest in real life, and um, and what you thought of the title versus this the kind of late in the document kind of like call for integration. Yes, yeah, so, you know, like you rightly mentioned, I did uh, call out and identify that aspect of the document, the fact that it is titled U.S. Strategy Towards Sub-Saharan Africa as a interestingly, um, um, I would say, um, a bit of a letdown, uh, even though there are some aspects of the document that are absolutely spot on, as I mentioned, the framing, you know, some of the objectives around advancing post-pandemic economic recovery and opportunity and around climate change and a just energy transition. Those are all I find very exciting, very interesting and very relevant. But the fact that the document itself, the scope is limited to sub-Saharan Africa, despite the fact that uh, the document claims that uh, it was preceded by uh, extensive consultations, I, I thought, you know, that, you know, they could have done better on that front. That is, uh, uh, you know, the the NSC, the White House, the the those who uh, designed and prepared it. I mean, I also understand some of the limitations around that. That you know, there's a way the U.S. government bureaucracy is structured uh, with these uh, demarcations uh, and uh, country classifications. Um, uh, Sub-Saharan Africa. The in fact, North North Africa is under the. Um, uh, it's called the. I. It's 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 actually not Middle East and North Africa. I think it's the Near East. Is the Near East it. exactly? It's called the Near East, right? So there are all these bureaucratic uh, groupings that are kind of set in stone in a sense. But I do think that uh, for a strategy document that is meant to be aspirational, that is a vision statement of where the U.S. sees its relationship with Africa evolving uh, in the future. It, there could have been an attempt to be a lot more bold on that front to bridge that artificial and perplexing demarcation between sub-Saharan Africa and North Africa. Given the fact that, you know, you look at any pan-African continental initiative, whether from the African Union or the African Development Bank or the United Nations Economic Commission for Africa, they all refer to the continent of Africa on things that affect uh, a wider group of countries. Now, we know that there are indeed political divisions, there are socio-cultural differences, you know, between some Northern African countries, some in Southern Africa, East Africa, etc. But, you know, you can also make the case for the, Euro for the European Union. You have 27 countries there, you have countries in the Mediterranean, Italy, France, uh, Spain, you have countries in the Baltics, Latvia, Estonia, you have those Scandinavian countries, Germany, Finland, Switzerland, they're all very, very different. 
but they have decided to come together into an economic union. It is the same thing with Africa. Uh, the countries are very different, but they have decided to come together through the Africa Continental Free Trade Area, through Agenda 2063 and other such um, initiatives. So I think the U.S. could have and should, going forward, try to align uh, its approach to Africa with respect to how the continent sees itself and its aspiration for its own future. And then, you know, there are some issues that would require specific country-level approaches, whether on elections, uh, you know, or issues that might require sub-regional uh, interventions or sub-regional engagement strategies with, with West Africa, Southern Africa, with the regional economic communities, for example. So I think that's one area where, honestly, uh, I felt was a bit of a, a serious letdown, by the way. Now, to the other aspect of your question, Kobus, on uh, you know how this relates to the Indo-Pacific, I think that's a very interesting point. I It's something I have really not thought of, and I've not seen much mention of it uh, on that front. I know there are some uh, initiatives and efforts to do um, or to, to to rope in some of the countries on the uh, on the on the Indian Ocean coast, whether it's uh, Kenya or you know the island nations around you know discussions around the Indo-Pacific. But to be honest, it's not something that I've really come across or thought of more extensively. You mentioned that this is an aspirational vision document, and it's interesting you you use those particular words because. That's what I've heard in the past couple of weeks when I've spoken with some African scholars and researchers to get their reaction to it. And there was a sense of like, Eric, we've heard this for 15 years. We've been hearing about American aspirations and about all the potential for Africa, all the great things that America can do, all of the tech companies, the finance, the pharmaceuticals. Where is it? All we've been hearing are promises and aspirations. And this is one of the reasons why the Chinese tend to perform better in the public opinion surveys is because they're not talking about aspirational documents. They're actually showing up with construction crews and building stuff. Meanwhile, American trade for the past 10 years has been steadily declining, despite all the best efforts of one administration after another, despite the best efforts of the chambers of commerce, the corporate councils, people like you, to try and motivate American businesses to get more engaged in Africa, doesn't seem to be doing very much. So in your foreign affairs column, you talked about the potential for pharmaceutical companies to invest in Africa and to build supply chains. You talked about the role of American technology. All of this is great, but what gives you any indication or optimism that the situation is going to change with this document different than what it was with Prosper Africa or even under the Obama administration where they said a lot of the same things? So this is a, <laughs> I think it's a million dollar question in a sense, and uh, it probably has two parts. So the first part being uh, the aspirational nature of the document and um, how sometimes that elicits uh, significant frustration from a number of African countries and African scholars and Africa watchers. Uh, and uh, Judy Moore, another friend who is at the Center for Global Development, actually did an assessment of the uh, new strategy. And one of the points he makes is that there's a credibility gap uh, that the US faces because a lot of these initiatives are announced and then the follow through isn't always that clear cut. So, um, you know, so, so I, I kind of understand that, but I guess I want to also clarify what I mean by aspirational here in the sense that, you know, 
when you do a strategy, uh, at, you know, even stepping away from the U.S. government specifically here uh, in any large organization, whether it's a private sector, an investment bank or development finance institution, um, you know, the people who do strategies are often very different from, you know, the project people, the project implementers. And there's oftentimes this interesting relationship between the two. You know, those who do the visioning and they come up with a new initiative and the everyday project people on the ground. In this case, in the case of the U.S., you know, people in U.S. embassies in different African countries or people in uh, the, uh, you know, 17 uh, entities, agencies and departments from the Department of Energy to the Department of Agriculture to USTDA to the Department of State, etc., that have to deal with the implementation is that, you know, there's this, the interesting relationship is characterized by the fact that, um, you know, they, the implementers usually have their mandate, which is quite concrete, which is uh, set in some legislation uh, or, you know, some kind of guiding document. Uh, they probably even also have their own departmental or agency level strategy. And then, you know, the people also, in this case, the NSC, the White House, you know, they come up with a new strategy for doing things differently. And really a lot depends on being able to bridge that gap. Uh, and, you know, a similar dynamic could be at play here uh, in the case of the U.S. Uh, so uh, bridging that gap is going to be very, very important, which is why a strategy then and a vision is really, really aspirational that you aspire to coordinate all of these uh, 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 departments, entities and agencies towards these four objectives that have been outlined and to achieve results within a specific time frame, right? So that really is what I meant by it being uh, aspirational. Yeah, but let me just push back a little bit on that. The Chinese government as an institution and an organization is equally as large as the United States government, equally as vast, equally complex, same amount of ministries, factions, all the same challenges that the United States government has in coordinating, the Chinese government has as well. Yet in their vision documents, they're putting specific numbers out as targets. $300 billion in exports, $40 billion in financial packages at FOCAC, X number of, uh, of agricultural development centers, for example. So the United States has to compete now against a competitor who is putting out hard numbers. That's not aspirational in the sense that they're trying to reach targets. And there's no targets in this one other than broad platitudes about democracy, governance, health, and climate. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, very, very valid point. And, uh, you know, the, the crux of the issue is the way the governance entities and institutions are set up in both countries are very, very different. And, and in a way, you know, what, what you see happening in the U.S. Uh, with the new strategy, with efforts by the NSC, is really to try and coordinate things towards much clearer objectives and to be a bit more proactive Whereas in the past, uh, engagement with Africa, Africa specifically, maybe less so other parts of the world, whether the Middle East or, you know, parts of Asia, where there's a bit more coherence there. In Africa, you know, for a long time, it's just been very ad hoc. There's a crisis, you know, some you know, conflict somewhere in the Horn of Africa, in the Sahel, and then suddenly there's a flurry of activity around developing humanitarian assistance, uh, you know, the uh, uh, efforts around you know, combating terrorism, or infectious diseases, it's just that. Like, it's kind of really baked in, in a sense, but it's also very ad hoc. Whereas this time around, I think what they're trying to do differently is that they're trying to be a bit more proactive and try to 
coordinate. And for me, I would say that is the actual process of achieving that coordination and around, you know, like you rightly mentioned, setting in place, put in place uh, tangible metrics, uh, having tracking systems, but also very, very importantly, putting financing, putting funding, getting uh, uh, funding allocations and costing various aspects of the strategy that eventually become policy plans and uh, policy proposals. That will be very, very key here. So I think we also have to take into account that the governance systems, the way they're organized and set up and the way they operate are very, very different between China and the United States. In, in, a, in a talk about the, the new strategy document um, hosted by Center for, uh, for Strategic and International Studies, you made the point that, um, that it, it would really be very helpful if the U.S. would move quite quickly, um, you know, and, and, and to, to make some kind of some to, to achieve some kind of tangible, um, tangible, you know, kind of goals um, in order to to achieve, to demonstrate that that they mean business. Um, so I was wondering, you know, kind of what some of these kind of low hanging fruit or kind of quick wins are in, in your mind, and 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 which of those you feel have the kind of the, the the greatest kind of chance for success? So it is absolutely, absolutely critical, I would say, for the U.S. to move quickly. Uh, because as we just discussed, um, and in fact, uh, Eric has made this case even more forcefully than I have, that people in African countries are actually quite skeptical. Yes, some have welcomed the strategy, but a lot of people, a lot of governments are actually quite skeptical. And part of the reason is that it's not that, that people don't welcome U.S. engagement. They do. They want that, actually. You know, whether it's on vaccines or whatever else, people would prefer the one that comes from the U.S. than the one that comes from China, for example. But they end up using the one that comes from China, whether it's mobile handsets, whatever, because they just don't have, you know, the, the U.S. version. So they make do with what they have. So people want that engagement. They welcome it. But the problem is... Um, and uh, this is a point Jude Moore has made very, very forcefully as well, is that credibility gap that has been widening. And I give you an example. Um, you know, uh, at the G7 summit that concluded in June uh, this year, suddenly we found out that a new infrastructure initiative, the GPII, Global Partnership for Infrastructure Investment, was launched and quietly, B3W, the Build Back Better World, which was launched last year with a lot of fanfare to do the exact same thing, was kind of dropped to the side, right? So you can imagine for countries that welcomed the B3W last year and were quite optimistic, suddenly they're now like, okay, uh, what do we do? You know, what happens to the B3W? Is it dead? Has it been completely replaced by the GPII? So when you keep having this, then you can, you know, even as a human being, you know, at some point you just say, okay, I don't know when I'm going to take this uh, uh, seriously. So, uh, you know, there is, there is, there is, uh, there's definitely that aspect of it. I think um, in terms of moving quickly, therefore, it's going to be very important to, for the U.S. to demonstrate that this time around things are different and that it means business. And there are a number of things that can be done within the next few weeks, the next few months, that do not even require congressional approval, for example, right? That uh, you know can be done by the White House, can be done by the Biden administration. 
You know, the first one is you think of U.S. engagement with non-governmental entities or civil society organizations, and you know that is a big deal in the strategy. It came out prominently, but the reality of making that happen, uh, you know, becomes very very difficult because uh, a lot of civil society entities, non-governmental entities, uh, people, students, journalists, etc., cannot get travel visas to the U.S. And we're not even talking about immigration. We're not talking about people moving their families to come and live in the U.S. No, people who have conferences to attend, uh, people who, especially smaller and medium-scale enterprises that attend trade fairs, whether in Florida or in California or tech summits, they cannot get visas. In fact, there's a case in 2019 when uh, this was even before COVID, when a, a conference was organized on, I think, trade and agriculture in Africa uh, in the U.S., and there was no African participant because none of the invitees could get visas, right? So this is something that, you know, the Biden administration can do very quickly. Wait times at U.S. embassies for people to get appointments for a student visa or some kind of visitor visa exceed two years in countries like Nigeria, Kenya, Ghana, etc., uh, the U.S. Africa Leaders Summit is coming up in December, and I'm sure there's going to be a lot of effort to do things with civil society and non-governmental entities. I mean, what if they cannot attend because they cannot get visas? What happens to those civil society initiatives? So that's one thing that can be done quickly. I'm not so sure that can be done very quickly because U.S. embassies in Africa are severely understaffed. And what the State Department will tell you is that they're bound by the money that Congress gives them. Congress continues to add more responsibilities and burdens onto the State Department, does not give it extra money. That means it has to redeploy people to do those other things. So in order to staff people to approve the visas, you have to go back to Congress to get money. Congress doesn't want to give the State Department money. So I'm not so, I'm not so sure that's actually a, a quick fix. And it reveals the problem with the U.S. government, as you've alluded to. It's a very, very complex organization. That I don't know if there's anything that's quick in the U.S. government. I mean, the intricacies of, uh, I, you know, that, that, could, that could be an entire podcast episode on its own. So the intricacies of like the visa system and all of that are quite uh, uh, um, uh, uh, elaborate, I would say. <laughs> I think at the same time, though, uh, we also know that uh, if the U.S. government prioritizes something, uh, things can move quickly on that front. Yes, we've seen that with Ukraine. Gonna... <laughs> Forty billion dollars <laughs> exactly. got passed in two weeks. You know but, exactly you know, the sense so that we have. The priority is going to move quickly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but the sense that we have out in Southeast Asia, where I, I mean, I'm in California now, but normally I live in Vietnam, and, and there's a, a large circle of policy people who kind of talk about these things, is that if the United States couldn't muster more than 150 million dollars under the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework which you referenced in your articles and you referenced today 150 million dollars for 10 countries over 5 years on the front lines of the great power competition with China that does not bode very well for Africa because that is nothing and there was a sense too that a lot of folks in Southeast Asia who I spoke with said you know, the Americans just don't really understand what they're up against. The Chinese are dropping $4 billion, $5 billion on railways. They're the largest trade partner in Southeast Asia. They are the largest navy now in the world. And the United States is coming to these, these bazooka fights with toothpicks. 
And it just makes me think that if they're not rising to the challenge in Southeast Asia, which is a geopolitical priority for the United States, Africa, which is still struggling to get on the agenda in many respects in Washington circles, how are they going to fare? Does that concern you at all when you see how the United States is struggling in other more geopolitically primary theaters? Um, not really, to be honest. I love <laughs> your optimism. Really I love your optimism, Zainab. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I have to be optimistic to do the job that I do. Uh, but 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 I am I am genuinely optimistic because um, again, you know, you you gave the example of Ukraine. So we do know that the resources are there if the political will exists. And the political will is really shaped by the extent to which the United States identifies an issue or region as a strategic priority. And I think that is the key. So to this strategy then, the strategy document, I think what then gives me a bit of uh, optimism is that we're starting to see that shift. It's not quite there yet fully where Africa is recognized as an important region on its own. Sure, part of it is informed by China and Russia and these other rival powers, but also Africa is important on its own. Is it the UN votes? Is it the demographics, the natural resources, etc. right? So I think uh, for people like us also the effort we are making is to try to make it very clear that Africa indeed is a strategic priority. Even if it's not a priority today, it's a priority in the future. It has that latent advantage and latent importance. And that's the point that we try to make very clear. And I think once that shift occurs, then it's going to unlock more resources, right? So in terms of, again, you know, quick wins that Kobus asked earlier, because I think it links to this point, uh, Eric, is that, um, again, you know, the U.S. given its uh, influence with European allies in multilateral organizations, the World Bank, the IMF, the United Nations, or at least some entities in the United Nations, can champion some courses that are important for Africa and have those courses uh, uh, make a lot of progress. So just a few days ago, uh, the Chinese foreign minister, Wang Yi, made it very clear that not only China, not only is China uh, canceling some low interest, uh, uh, interest-free loans for African countries, but they're actually going to champion uh, the cause being advocated for by the African Union to join the G20. Now, you know, I read that and part of me was kind of excited that, oh, look, finally, you know, the case is being made for Africa to join the G20. But part of me was also a bit sad because I was like, this is something that the U.S. should have done easily. So champion the cause of Africa to join the G20. If the European Union is a member of the G20, why is the African Union not a member of the G20 with 54 countries or 55 countries? Right. The discussion around SDRs, uh, the discussion around the U.N., Security Council, the permanent uh, membership of the UN Security Council. Why is there no African country there? This is something that the US can easily champion and kind of nudge European allies. So there are actually a number of quick wins and they are implementable, they are doable within the next couple of weeks or months. 
the political will needs to be there and that political will will be shaped by the ability to define Africa as a key strategic priority for the United States. So, you know, in, in, in your job, you, you do, you interact with lots of people in Washington, D.C. Um, and I was, I was wondering uh, what kind of framing of African issues you hear when you, when you speak to particularly to non-Africanists, you know, kind of, uh, you know, kind of more like people who are, who are concerned about U.S. foreign policy in general or U.S. economic policy or China. Um, so, you know, kind of like w what kind of views of Africa do you, do you, do you encounter like is is it still a, a, a view that's like mostly dominated by by the idea that Africa is is mostly a humanitarian problem to be solved, um, or you know are you are you getting a sense that that the debate is starting to shift a little bit in Washington? So I think there's a distinction between the Africanists, the Africa specialists working on uh, U.S. policy in Africa, and also just. The, 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 the people who just work on strategy more broadly, uh, just U.S. foreign policy more broadly. So within the Africanists, uh, I think I would divide them in two. Uh, there are those who recognize all of the things we're talking about, recognize the shifts happening and the need to do things differently. I mean, you talk to them, you're basically preaching to the choir and you'd hear even a lot more. So there's that group. And then there's another group that just wants to continue doing things as they are. In fact, they want to see a doubling down of, you know, whatever else it is that is that has been done for the past 10, 15 years, more of that. Um, and it's, it's, it's very interesting that, um, you know, <laughs> uh, yeah, th those two camps kind of uh, coexist. Uh, and uh, it's a, it's a, it's a very, very interesting uh, dynamic there. So among the non-Africa uh, specialists or the non-Africa foreign policy people. Um, I think, unfortunately, it's still the the, the perceptions on Africa um, haven't really changed that much, but they are shifting. They are starting to shift, and that shift is largely informed, really, by uh, the competition with China and other adversaries that are causing the uh, kind of generic foreign policy experts to pay more attention to Africa. Uh, but I do not see that as a problem uh, because the fact that we have some interesting global shift that is catalyzing a change in perceptions or that could potentially catalyze a change in perception, uh, I think that is a good thing. Um, so that that's how I would kind of characterize the the. Uh, policy environment of policy discourse and perceptions here in D.C. Our time is running short, and I want to make sure we have a little bit of time left to talk about some of the themes that you raised in your book about economic diversification in Nigeria. In many ways, Nigeria is representative of a number of resource-rich African countries who have struggled to move up the value chain by adding value and processing raw materials prior to export. And you talked about the politics of building a post-oil economy in Nigeria that certainly could be a post-cobalt economy in the Democratic Republic of Congo or a post-bauxite economy in Guinea. It applies to a number of different countries. Let's talk a little bit about some of the challenges that you identified in the book. And then again, there is a slight China theme to this in part because a lot of those raw materials end up going to China where they're processed there, and the Chinese are capturing the value of that, not Africans. Talk to us about what you found in Nigeria in, the, in terms of the politics of building a post-oil economy. So what I do with the book 
I try to address the kind of uh, academic debates around resource-rich countries uh, and then try to distill aspects of those debates into actual policy implications for these countries in terms of policies they've implemented in the past and what they can do going forward. Uh, so starting with the debate itself, for resource-rich countries, for, I would say, the past two, three decades, the focus has been on uh, the curse of natural resources, uh, uh, particularly in Africa, but more generally in other uh, uh, emerging markets and developing economies, uh, that these resources, especially oil and gas, but also minerals, uh, are cursed to these countries and they cause certain socio-political and economic challenges. So definitely we know of the Dutch disease in which um, a country that is rich in these resources by virtue of the revenues that it earns uh, from these resources, uh, they crowd out other more productive and maybe more useful sectors like manufacturing, uh, uh, agriculture, etc. Uh, they cause a balance of uh, payments and, at some point, a balance of uh, trade crisis uh, and an exchange rate crisis as well. And then they also cause socio-political challenges that uh, uh, these countries are often susceptible to high levels of corruption, governance problems, instabilities, which eventually end up in conflict. So now all of those things are true, but the problem is I think there's a mischaracterization of the problem that these countries have, which is that the problem itself is not caused by the resources. So either in Nigeria or the Democratic Republic of Congo, if you know anything about the histories of these countries, you cannot just go there and say, oh, you know, it's oil or it's uh, cobalt or nickel or copper or whatever it is. That is the main issue in the country. The moment you take that resource out, there's going to be peace and flowers and uh, stability and infrastructure and, you know, everybody is going to live like a Norwegian or, uh, or Swiss. Uh, no, that is not the case. It's just that these countries have, uh, they already have their political challenges. Uh, part, part of it is historical, uh, which then is aggravated by these natural resources. And the key focus for them is that they need to diversify their economy. So Basically, the argument is that we need to reframe the problem itself. We need to have a proper diagnosis so that we can have policy solutions um, that are more useful. Now, coming to the policy angle of the book itself and the discussion, um, that you know, you look at the current discourse around climate change, uh, for example, and the need for these countries, oil and gas-rich countries in particular, to transition towards a low-carbon future. Uh, you realize that then the, the, the kind of policy advice that these countries have gotten, uh, the, their policy priorities around just managing revenues uh, to be able to address this resource curse has actually not helped them prepare for this new future that we're headed towards because they have not really focused on economic diversification, right? And then that relates to uh, China, but the US and also other Western countries that, you know, the focus for these countries in diversifying the economy should also include value addition, should also include investing in midstream and downstream processing and industries. So in the case of critical minerals, for example, the DRC, 
um, you know, the DRC needs to think of ways of building, of keying into supply chains for batteries, for renewable energy technologies that require these minerals, whether it's cobalt or copper or nickel, etc. Same with Nigeria, uh, around the critical minerals, but also around oil and gas, thinking about midstream and downstream processing and refining. So the problem then is, in the case of the US, in the case of Europe also, you actually don't see a lot of discussion around how do you invest in helping these countries go up the value chain for critical minerals, but also for downstream, and midstream and downstream processing of oil and gas products. So I see that as a huge missed opportunity. So the discourse around natural resources, critical minerals, or minerals more broadly in African countries is still around, oh, these resources are bad, they're, they're a curse. If you get engaged, it's just gonna be, you're just gonna be embroiled in corruption and all of these problems. Whereas there are opportunities there. And unfortunately, I think more of the Chinese companies and entities could seize those opportunities. We're already seeing that happening with critical minerals in the case of the DRC. So that's kind of, so those are some of the issues I touch on in the book. So you're talking about at the national level, this happening, going back to our, our mutual friend, Jude Moore at the Center for Global Development, one of the ideas that he's working on, and I'm sure he's not alone, is to stop thinking about these issues at the national level so that the DRC has to do this. The DRC has a big problem in that it has short of power. It doesn't have a lot of electricity and processing minerals takes an enormous amount of electricity. But Kenya is abundant in electricity. So working regionally and, and having cross-border infrastructure, cross-border rail, cross-border power, cross-border taxation, you know, governance issues to facilitate moving up the value chain as East Africa, West Africa, Southern Africa, for example, clusters of countries come together to, to solve this problem so that it's not all on one country's back. Did you look at that in your book in terms of regional cooperation? Uh, so that's a very, very good point. Thinking of innovations in uh, governance and institutional frameworks and arrangements beyond national governments. Uh, I did not look at that specifically in the book, uh, but I do absolutely agree that you know we need to think about, th think through those innovations, think through uh, kind of sub-regional approaches to shared infrastructure, for example, connectivity infrastructure. Uh, what I would also add is around even some of these industries and processing facilities, right? So small countries can kind of try to band together instead of having, you know, three small countries that have a total population of, I don't know, uh, 20 million people or 30 million people suddenly are going to have labor supply issues. You can band together and, you know, have a few processing facilities and kind of leverage the intra-regional of movement of people and movement of capital to make sure that that works. So even training, training uh, 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 facilities, etc. So that's that. At the same time, I I worry that sometimes there's this uh, tendency to try to leapfrog national governments on certain things. It's really not necessarily going to work. Uh, just a whole scale leapfrogging of national and central governments, because. You know, you look at uh, many African countries, and in fact, this is not just an Africa issue. Anything to do with land rights, natural resources, the jurisdiction for authority on that, on being able to like parcel out land, 
give mining leases, etc., does not lie with subnational governments. It lies with central governments because these are considered to be strategic assets, strategic priorities, right? You know, they're not just going to devolve that authority to some small municipal entity. Most countries do not do that. I think the U.S. and maybe Canada are a bit unique on that front that for you to get a mining lease, for example, in Texas, you would go through the the Texas government or, you know, like Alberta in Canada with the oil production. But it's not necessarily the case in Africa. In fact, in many other developing countries, even in parts of uh, Latin America. So um, just kind of uh, coming back to the issue of, you know, effective governance, state capacity. It's very, unfortunately, very debilitating in many African countries, uh, but we cannot leapfrog national governments. And then the onus is on those countries to try to make sure that they have more effective governance uh, arrangements. But there are things that we cannot just uh, kind of, uh, you know, uh, escape or overlook. So, you know, you, you touch in, 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 in some of the discussions I saw about your, uh, about your book, um, you touched on a, this kind of paradox that I, that I was also wondering about actually in relation to Nigeria is that on the one hand, um, you know, you, you point out that that Nigeria's foreign trade remains very much dominated by oil. Um, but, you know, if, just from my, my perspective in South Africa, Nigeria is such a kind of a powerhouse in many, many sectors. You know, it has such a massive kind of pop culture industry. Um, like it's, 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 a, it's really, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's very hip in South Africa to, to kind of to, to wear Nigerian stuff or to, you know, to, to kind of to, to, connect to Nigeria in some kind of way. You know, there's a big startup scene. There's all of this, all of this really kind of like interesting kind of like economic activity going on, but still on the trade side, the oil is so central. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how that, why, why that's that's the case. Very, very good question. And it relates to the central argument in the book, which is that uh, for these resource-rich countries, we need to have a better framework of really conceptualizing and diagnosing their main challenge, right, which is one of economic diversification. So even if we agree that economic diversification is their main challenge, whether Nigeria, DRC, or even beyond Nigeria, you know, uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, uh, Qatar, uh, Bahrain, etc., then we need to really be able to conceptualize what that economic diversification means within the context of that country. So in the case of Nigeria, unlike these countries in the uh, Persian Gulf, um, it is a major oil producer. It derives most of its export earnings from the sale of oil, about 80% or so. Yet when you look at the structure of the economy, economic activities, actually the oil sector contributes less than 10% of GDP. Which is a bit of which is a serious paradox, and in fact, it's very unlike Saudi Arabia or even Bahrain, where oil production is much more than twenty percent of their GDP. So, in the case of Nigeria, there's also a very large and vibrant private sector. There's actually a fairly large and developed and uh, relatively sophisticated manufacturing sector compared to other African countries, except for maybe South Africa and maybe Morocco uh, and so on. Um, but unfortunately, a lot of that dynamic economic activity is really not translating into exports. Uh, so that is Nigeria's own 
uh, economic diversification challenge, which is very much different from the DRC or, as I mentioned, the other oil producers. So then the challenge for Nigeria is really around, in, you know, increasing the competitiveness of its exports, its non-oil exports. So a lot of those are the things that are produced in the manufacturing sector, uh, even some kinds of services, etc. They're just not, they don't seem to be uh, competitive as exports. Uh, and, uh, you know, in the literature, you look at that, and I'm sorry, I'm going into a bit more technicality here. That has to do with increasing, you know, there are supply side issues, there are demand side issues. On the supply side, it really has to do with helping firms increase, increase their productivity, which then goes back to things like infrastructure, right? Electricity in, in Nigeria is, electricity access is actually terrible. It's much lower than what you have in Kenya, for example, right? Um, so, you know, really conceptualizing the challenge itself is very, very important. And in the case of Nigeria, that is the paradox that it has to deal with. Zainab Usman is a senior fellow and director of the Africa program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace in Washington, D.C. She has been prolific, on fire the past few months, cranking out amazing ideas all over the place. Let's start with the book, Economic Diversification in Nigeria, The Politics of Building a Post-Oil Economy. It is available on Amazon, but I must warn you that it is a tad on the pricey side. So if you are part of a university library or a corporate library, it's probably in there. If not, it might be a little pricey. So Zainab, you got it. It's an open access edition. Oh, good. You guys, I was open, about to say. Open access digital edition. Please yes. talk to your publisher about getting an open access edition. <laughs> yes. And then there are also two links that I'm going to put into the show notes, how America can foster an African boom. The continent needs investment, not just aid. That was in foreign affairs. And then from the Carnegie website, the new U.S.-Africa strategy breaks from the status quo with some perplexing stumbles. So a very nuanced argument and critique of the new U.S. strategy. Zainab, thank you so much for joining us again today. It's always a pleasure to have you on the program. If people want to find out and follow what you're reading and writing these days and stay in touch with everything that you're doing, what's the best way for them to get a hold of you? Uh, well, I'm on Twitter at... M-S-S-Z-E-E Usman, and I'm also on LinkedIn. Fantastic. Well, we'll put links to both of those as well in the show notes. Zainab, thank you again for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Kobus, it is always so refreshing to have Zainab on the show. She brings that optimism and that nuance and that enthusiasm for the mission that you just don't see very often, especially in a town like Washington. And you can contrast her optimism against my cranky pessimism. And I just, I love talking with her. And she really sobers me up every time to think that there are different ways of looking at this. I remain very, very skeptical that the United States is going to do the things that she advocates in her articles because, and this is nothing against her, this is just more a critique of the United States. I fundamentally do not believe that people in Washington understand the challenge that they're up against when dealing with the Chinese in Africa, in Asia, in other parts of the world. They're just not rising to the challenge. This would speak to the bumbling diplomacy at the Latin American summit in Los Angeles, the mishandling of the ASEAN leaders summit. Again, $150 million, 10 countries, five years. What are you doing? And in, in, in many ways, the reset on the Africa policy, noble as it is, has to be backed up by the institutions. So 
Judd Devermont at the National Security Council who wrote this policy and shepherded it through, he did his job. He went around to all the agencies, he talked to all the stakeholders, he got all the input. His job, in many respects, in my view, is done, okay? Now it's up to the various agencies and the various departments and at that operational level to make things happen. And this is where the people who I've spoken to over the past couple of weeks just surveying, saying, what do you think of this new strategy? They've said, you know what? I've heard it before. I'll believe it when I see it. And if the quick wins that they're talking about are visas, that's exactly what I'm talking about, that we don't understand the challenge that we're up against. The Chinese put out the, the goal of $300 billion dollars of imports. Wasn't that the number from FOCAC? Yes, I think so. And we're talking about visas? And we're talking about, you know, and again, nothing against Zainab. I, I get where she's coming from. She's trying to go where at least you can get some traction. But this is what I say. I don't get the sense that they know what they're up against when the Chinese are talking about $300 billion of imports. Now, do I think the Chinese are going to hit $300 billion of imports in the next two and a half years? No. That's just as aspirational as all the stuff in the U.S. strategy document. But honestly, though, when you put numbers to it, it feels different than when you put more of the vagaries and some of the ambiguous language that we have seen for decades in U.S. policy towards Africa. Okay, where do you land on the optimism-pessimism scale with Zainab being the ray of sunshine and me being the dark cloud? I'm, I guess I'm kind of in between. You, you compare the, the the visa issue to to all of this Chinese engagement, and of course, you know, there's a lot of U.S. engagement as well. You know, in in some ways, kind of like, you know, start like echoing in, in albeit in very different ways. Like, you know, the 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 size of, of of China's engagement in the sense that the U.S. is a superpower. You know, but I think what what like so 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 from that perspective like the the implication of the visa if 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 of the visa issue if if the us could just kind of just overcome that backlog i completely agree with zainab that 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 would be transformational um and you know kind of in the sense of kickstarting so much other kinds of engagement including for example all of this engagement that that the new strategy is aiming at um, at the U.S. diaspora. Well, I mean the, the the African diaspora in the U.S. You know, and 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 building those connections. I guess where I become more kind of like gloomy than you is that I wonder whether that's politically feasible in the U.S. at the moment. Like whether whether even even you know kind of even you know kind of um acknowledging that that compared to what everything that china is doing the visa thing is really small it becomes even more depressing when one then has to acknowledge that e that that even the visa thing might be the difficult to slash impossible to achieve the visa thing is not easy i mean again it sounds easy but logistically it's not easy because it relates to the understaffing of the state department remember that mike pompeo imposed a hiring freeze at the State Department. They are feeling the effects of that today. And to hire more people, again, requires money from Congress. It's not just simply like, okay, we can turn on the visas and make it make it happen faster. This is not just a uniquely African problem either, by the way. It's difficult to get visas in many parts of the world for the United States. Yeah, but, but, but there, but there you, you're essentially, I guess... Like the the way that 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 is that that is articulated, you know, kind of then like I I then essentially kind of steal your point, which is that yeah, but China is is mobilizing entire provinces to to boost African trade, you know, in the form of Hunan, um, you know, so so like is the visa thing really that big? 
you know, sure, it is big, but it's at the same time, it's small, you know? We're not, and again, you're right. Let, let's not, I, again, I, I keep, I sound like a broken record here. Just because I'm critical of the U.S. doesn't mean I want to poop over everything that they're doing. There's a lot of good that they're doing. The key question is, is this strategy and are U.S. policies up to the challenge that the Chinese have set? And that's where I don't think so. And I don't want to make the Chinese the 10-foot-tall monsters where they're doing everything amazing and they're right. No, but the Chinese are bringing cash to the table. They're bringing presence to the table. They're bringing engagement to the table. All of these things that the United States is struggling to do. And meantime, in Washington, all everybody wants to talk about in, in Washington is U.S., China, Taiwan, and Ukraine, Russia. These issues of Africa, Latin America, Southeast Asia are peripheral in many people's minds. In, in, you know, and that's why I think it's going to be hard to get it up on, on the agenda. I, I'm just, I'm not that, that optimistic. Well, the thing that, you know, the thing is that, that our, our work is maybe, a, you know, a multi-year thousands of stories kind of rebuttal to that thing. You know, it's like, yep, well, it may be, it may be marginal to, to, to people's concerns in Washington, but it's certainly not marginal to the concerns of people in Beijing. No, not at all. And, and again, the blindness in Washington and among Americans in general on this issue, on the, what the Chinese are doing in places other than Taiwan, China, and Europe is mind-blowing to me. I mean, the discourse is so narrow in so much of the discussion on China, uh, I just don't get it. I just don't get it. Why they don't see that places like, you know, South America, Southeast Asia are important is, is yeah, really Yeah, but like, I think, I think you know, kind of it's really, particularly in relation to Africa and particularly in relation to these issues, I think it's, it is important to, to have a to have an, an honest conversation, not only about what the United States should do or could do, you know, what its options are in relation to 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 Africa, but why things are the way they are now. You know, it's it's like, you know, it's things are very uncomfortable for the, for Africans, but they are engineered in this particular way because they 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 are convenient for for other people, right? So there's so the visa thing happens to be convenient if one, like in in the case of many European countries, are fixated about African migration to the exclusion of all other African issues. Then, of course, the visa thing, the visa backlog of two years makes a lot of sense, right? So, you know, so 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 I don't think we need to 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 pretend that this is just an oversight or just you know because the U.S. system is so complex or you know like people have reasons for doing things, um, you know. Um, so you know, so so I think I think yeah, it, it well, is important to have to have that conversation. You know, there is there there are hardcore economic reasons why the U.S. focuses so much on aid rather than trade and it it is not because they just so want they're so fixated on 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 boosting civil society in africa right kind of the, that's not the reason so you know so 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 in that sense you know i think i think it is important both on the african side and the us side and european side of course um to have real conversations about what's going on but the problem is that 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 frequently those are those are the kind of say the quiet but loud kind of conversations but let's be honest, though, that one of the reasons why aid continues to be such a driver in U.S. foreign policy in Africa is because ringing Washington, D.C. around the Beltway is an entire industry, a multi-billion dollar industry 
known internally as the Beltway Bandits, who have incredibly sophisticated lobbying capabilities and make sure that the aid business continues to keep the money flowing. Whereas the United States government doesn't have the ability to compel private industry to move the same way. So that's what we saw with the Ford and Tesla deals on strategic minerals doing deals with the Chinese in Indonesia and with CATL and in others. So that's a big part of this as well, is that there is a big infrastructure to drive aid and military and not as much to be able to compel businesses to engage. One other key point I want to bring up just before we go. As of the time of this recording, it is 804 days until the 2024 U.S. presidential election. Now, that may seem like a long ways away, but it's actually not, because it means that really 2023 will be consumed by the U.S. presidential election. If the forecasts are anything to go by, who knows if they're right or not, the Democrats are going to get trounced in this election, and the party of Make America Great Again is going to come back to life, either in the form of Donald Trump or somebody else. But MAGA will be a presence either in the House or in the White House. And it makes me think that MAGA's priorities, which accounts for about 50% of the American population, okay, a majority of people who identify as MAGA don't even acknowledge that President Biden is the legitimate president. My point here is that this great new policy that the Americans have may only have a shelf life of two years at most. The Europeans have already said, you know what, we're in a wait and see mode just to see what happens after this election, because if MAGA comes back into power again, forget it, all bets are off. And I wonder if people in Africa, Southeast Asia, other parts of the world are making the same calculation. Judd Devermott, you did a great job on this, but you know what? I'm going to hold my breath and I'm going to wait a little bit until I see what happens with the election just to make sure that the Americans have the staying power and the commitment politically in terms of the transfer of power to stay with an engaged Africa policy. Or if MAGA comes back into power, do we go right back to prosper Africa and confronting Russia and China and Africa? Or if, if, the, if that, um, you know. Um, or if that. The, if, you know, the, remember, this was the famous S-holes country, you yeah. know. It's a family program, Koba, so I don't like to say this where we're. <laughs> yeah. So, you, you know, that was the mindset of the president at the time who, by the way, never went to Africa once, only met Africans as a group, which, by the way, folks in Washington will say at least he's met African leaders, Trump met African leaders. Biden, as far as I know, up until the summit coming up in December, has still yet to meet African leaders as a group, or he's met a few one-on-one, -on -one, but it hasn't been a key priority for him. So anyway, I mean, I just it's something to think about that the divisive, toxic politics in the United States may complicate this aspirational policy that's come out from the White House. Yeah, you know, this it's it's very true. And 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 with it then of course comes the the kind of irony that that these kind of electoral cycles um you know tend to I mean e even even you know kind of in, in moments when when American politics are, are not as polarized as they are right now it still was a pattern where you know kind of each incoming administration would would neglect or kill you know like initiatives from the previous administration that's just you know kind of how it's been um so you know so 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 it's it's kind of ironic that it is that that even as this is true and even as as this kind of affects the you know the the relationship between the united states and africa and other and other parts of the world 
the United States at the moment is is essentially like throwing all of its chips onto onto this this kind of like very stark framing between between a, a democratic world and an undemocratic world, you know. Um, so you know, it's just a just a, an irony of of history, I think. Okay, so we've done a couple shows now looking at the new U.S. strategy for Africa. We're going to back away from the whole U.S. China Africa thing for just a bit because at some point it gets a little exhaustive. But we're in this era of great power politics, and there's no way to really avoid it. So it's going to be something that we keep coming back to, and hopefully we're going to be looking at it from different points of view, different voices. It's great to have Zainab, and then we had Ali Wine as well on the show as well. They're both from a Washington perspective. I'd like to get more from Asia, Africa, and the Global South looking at that. So we're going to try and look for some guests there. Also, this issue that Zainab focused on in terms of moving up the value chain— This has been one of the areas that we've wanted to focus on as well, looking at countries like Indonesia that have done well and seeing if there's some models maybe in Southeast Asia as well that Africans and Latin Americans and others can draw from, really this classic kind of South-South cooperation. And so we'll be looking at those. So some really cool shows coming up later on. I'll be heading back to Asia next week, finally. So uh, I'm really excited to get back. And so we're going to be doing a lot more on ASEAN as well and in the China Global South podcast that we're trying to get off the ground. It's been something that's a work in progress. Again, I talked about it a couple of months ago. We're hoping to get this into everybody's feeds when I get back to Asia. And uh, there's been some technical difficulties with Apple that we're trying to resolve. But hopefully, hopefully it's almost done. So, Kobus, let's leave the conversation there. If this is the kind of thing you love to talk about, love to think about, then you're going to want to sign up for the China Global South Daily Brief and access to our website where we just dive into these issues. And and I'm not kidding you. Nobody else is doing this. We've got eight full-time editors in Asia and Africa producing some just amazing analysis every day, incredible analysis, ideas and, and ways of looking at these things that nobody else is doing. And so if this is what interests you and you want to have a fresh way of looking at these ideas, I highly, highly encourage you to check out what we're doing at the China Global South Project. Subscriptions are super cheap, $149 a year for everybody, uh, $75 for students and teachers. So we cut the price in half to make it accessible for people in the academic space. Go to chinaglobalsouth.com slash subscribe. Also, a quick shout out to everybody on Patreon for supporting us. Thank you. You guys are rock stars in our world. We really appreciate it. So let's leave it there. Cobus Knight will be back again next week with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. For Cobus Van Staden in Johannesburg, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Tag us on Twitter at ChinaGS Project and visit us at ChinaGlobalSouth.com. If you speak French, Check out our full coverage at projetafriquechine.com and Afrikchine on Twitter. That's Afrique with a K. And you'll also find links to our sites and social media channels in Arabic. <laughs> <laughs>